There are moments where singing to our Savior with His people is truly overwhelming. And it is such a joy to know Jesus, to enjoy Him, and to have the, the joy of helping others know Him as well. The last night that Jesus was with His disciples before being betrayed, crucified, He said these words to His closest friends, In the world you will have tribulation. This is John 16, 33. Jesus is making it very clear to his closest companions that, that this world is broken. That it's corrupted. That it is engulfed with darkness. And that trouble is inevitable. But in that same verse, he says, yes, in the world you will have tribulation. He says, but take heart. For I have overcome the world. He's overcome the world. You see, our enemy is the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience. The dragon, the ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan. You see, Satan is currently ruling in this evil world system. And his kingdom of darkness is marked by selfishness, lies, addictions, disease, brokenness, fear, corruption, and death. But our King Jesus has come into the world as the seed of the woman, the promised Messiah who has conquered the serpent... He has overcome the world and the satanic kingdom of darkness. And through his death and resurrection, Jesus was victorious over sin and Satan and death. And we worship a resurrected king who is a victorious warrior and gives us victory in our daily lives. We have been rescued from slavery to sin and to the domain of darkness and been restored and put into his kingdom of light and set in our rightful place as children of God, as image bearers of God, the prized jewel of his creation, our rightful place of being set apart for joyful service to the king, our God. That is our rightful place, to be in his kingdom, joyfully serving him for eternity. And our God's work is restoration. That's what he does. God is actively at work. He's working out his plan to restore this broken world back to its original intended purpose, which is to be a display, a reflection of his glory. And that includes you and me here together. And praise be to our God in heaven who takes our failures because all of us experience them sadly far too often. And our God takes our failures and because of his grace, what the enemy means for evil, he turns for good because he indeed is sovereign. 
And he takes all of our brokenness and our failures through his grace. He restores us back to himself. He restores us to each other in our relationships. And he restores us to our original purpose as image bearers to image, to reflect his glorious, holy character. And so we're considering this theme of restoration here as a church, and we're doing it by studying the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. So we're talking about restoration, the gospel in Ezra and Nehemiah. And we're going to see how God's ongoing restorative work is opposed by Satan. Our enemy wants to oppose and prevent God's restoration from happening in the world, in your life, and in our church. He doesn't want to see restoration. He wants to see more brokenness and more more division. He doesn't want to see restoration. He hates God, and so therefore Satan hates those that have his image. He hates us. And so it's been said that God loves you and has a good plan for your life. Well, Satan hates you and has a bad plan for your life. This is who Satan is. And so today we're thinking about restoration opposed by the enemy. Now, just to get you up to speed here in this series, is we've been looking at how a little over 42,000 of God's people that were in captivity in Babylon were led back to the land of promise, to Judah and Jerusalem. The city had been destroyed, and so they're beginning to rebuild the city They are rebuilding their lives. They're restored back to the promised land. And they have begun to rebuild and restore the temple. We saw this last week, how the altar was restored, which most importantly, they're restoring worship back to God's people. And and the foundation was laid for the temple. So that's also being rebuilt. And so God is restoring people back to himself as a community of faith. And so let's pick up this morning in Ezra chapter 4, where we left off last week when we finished Ezra chapter 3. So we're in Ezra 4, and let's see what happened when the Israelites continued rebuilding the temple of the Lord. Let's read Ezra 4, verses 1 and 2. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord... The God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Ishardun, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Okay, let's understand what's happening in these first two verses. The inhabitants of the land here in verse 1, are called adversaries. They're called enemies. Now, what's interesting is in verse 2, they're claiming to worship the one true God. So it's interesting how they're called enemies, and yet they're claiming to worship the same God of Israel. Now, the history of these people is recorded in 2 Kings 17. It's actually very interesting. I hope you understand this chapter better. So maybe on your own time this week, you can go back and read 2 Kings chapter 17, and you can see what happened over 100 years before here with Ezra. 
So what happened there, I'll give you the brief summary, is after the king of Assyria had conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, also known as Samaria, he forced people from all over the empire of Assyria to move in to Samaria. And so picture people from Babylon, people from all over the Middle East. He would send in an army into a town or a village And he would forcefully remove them from their village. And he would relocate them and force them to live in a new area. In this case, Samaria. And then he would cause them to intermingle and to marry. In an effort to stamp out the people. And to just create a whole new people, a whole new culture. And so this is a very evil thing that the Assyrians did in repopulating and moving around people against their will. And so it describes in 2 Kings 17 where people were taken to Israel and then they brought their gods, their idolatry, their idols. They brought all of that with them and they mixed it with the worship of the one true God. They were, they were, it's called syncretism, where you take two religions and you mix them together, and you have a whole new third one that's neither the first or the second one. And so it says in, in 2 Kings 34, it says, They feared the Lord, so they're worshiping the one true God, so they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods. It says they did not fear the Lord. And so... Ultimately, when when you take faith in the one true God, and then you mix it with another religion, you actually don't have true faith in the one true God. Following Jesus is exclusive. And there's a reason why marriage is designed to be a reflection of God's love for his people, because your marriage ought to be exclusive. There are no open relationships with Jesus. It's not how he rolls. He doesn't doesn't want us to have other lovers on the side, other idols or other, other beliefs. He says, no, Jesus is exclusive. He is faithful to his bride, the church. And we are called to be faithful to him exclusively. Jesus alone, as revealed in his word, alone. But our world says, oh, that's so archaic. I'm okay and you're okay. It doesn't really matter what you believe. Like my little girl just this week has a good friend who's British and everyone else in the class is, is Arab or Indian. It's funny. She's like two white girls in the whole class. And, and Abigail got into a conversation with her Muslim friends. And her Muslim friends were saying, Oh, you're not Muslim. You're going to the fire after you die. Abby says, I'm not going to the fire. You're going to the fire after you die. And then, and then the really great pluralist, her friend who's British, says, no, no, no. No one's going to the fire. We're all going to heaven. It doesn't matter if you're Muslim or Christian you can't believe whatever you want. This is an eight-year-old conversation, right? This is in my daughter's class. And believe whatever you want. 
because we're all going to heaven. And so then Abigail, driving home, says, Daddy, is that true? And I was like, Abby, well, what do you think? And she says, no, I don't think that's true. She says, only through Jesus. And I was like, yes. She says, I am the way and the life and the truth. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's exclusive. It is a lie from hell to say every religion is the same. We're all going to the same place anyway. And these individuals, Samaritans, did not have genuine faith in God. They didn't. Now, there was a process where the Samaritans, these people that, that were wanting to partake of Israel's worship, they could have become members of the community. There was a process to be a proselyte, to actually adopt and say, I want to be a follower of the one true God and actually become a member of the community of faith. Renounce the idolatry and become spiritually an Israelite. Because ethnically, the Israelites were mixed. It wasn't all just ethnic Jews. There were many people from different nations that had joined the people of God. And so they could have done that, but they didn't want that. They didn't want the exclusivity of following just God. You see, they didn't want to repent, turn away from their idols, and really follow God. What they wanted to do was continue worshiping their idols while also serving God to rebuild the temple. You know what they were? Very ecumenical. Very pluralistic in their thinking. And today, there's similar popular language. Of I, I hear a conversation in, on Facebook. I, my wife, she shows me this stuff. because Oh, here, you want to see this quote because she knows I'll be interested. And it seems like there's this conversation on narrowing the gap. Seems to be a popular phrase today. Oh, there's a narrowing of the gap between Christianity and other religions. And this is praised as though somehow there ought not be a gap between different religions because ultimately they're all the same anyway. As disciples of Jesus, our task is not to narrow the gap. That is not our calling. There is a difference. We believe that Jesus is God and that apart from his finished work on the cross, which was a substitute for our sin and our guilt and our shame, apart from completely trusting in the work of Christ, there is no hope for any human And it's our calling is to tell those around us this good news so that they will join us in the true worship of the one true God. Let's keep reading. Verse 3. So they asked to help build the temple. Verse 3. But Zerubbabel, Yeshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel said to them, this is awesome, you have nothing to do with us. And building a house to our God. But we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Man, they just dropped the hammer on them. They're like, no, we have nothing to do with you. No, you're not of us. You don't have true faith in God. 
You don't have genuine trust in God. And you guys are pagans. You have your other idols. And you want to mix and claim it's the same God? I'm sorry. No. You don't have any part of us. You're not going to partake within the temple because God would not have been pleased. God would have been really unhappy if these other people would have partaken in building his house. So the answer was no. Absolutely not. All roads don't lead to Jesus. Sorry. You don't believe as we do. And so you, you can't worship God in this way. How do they respond? How does Samaritan's respond to being told, I don't think so, verses 4 and 5? Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. Aha! Now we see their true intentions. Now we see why, really, they wanted to help build the temple. Because the same that they were told no, they began to oppose the work of God. They didn't humbly repent and say, we will want to join you and serve God for his glory. No, no. What they did is they began to oppose the work of God. And they did three things. It says discouragement, fear, and frustration. It says they discouraged the people. They made them afraid to build. And they frustrated their purpose. So keep those in mind. We'll talk about it later towards the end as we begin to apply this. This is how the enemy opposes the people and the work of God. He seeks to discourage us. He seeks to instill fear in us and to frustrate our purpose. Why? Why do the Samaritans really want to help build the temple? It was all about influence and control. See, for these people, the temple was not about the glory of God. It wasn't. It was about them. And them being able to help build the temple, therefore have influence over how the temple could be used. Because if you put your resources and your manpower to help build it, then you have some say in how it's going to be used. And so it was more about control for them and controlling the region and having influence over the people of God and propagating their syncretism, their mixed religious Beliefs. So this was not about the glory of God. It was about themselves. And so since they couldn't get the control they wanted, they began to frustrate and discourage and try to terrify the people of God. So before we move forward, let's stop here for a second. And let's just, let's just try to apply this part before going forward. Have you ever in your life wanted whether it's at work or maybe at church, wanted a position or or wanted a role on a promotion, something like a position or a role. And then God said, no. He closed the door. Someone else got the, the position. Someone else got the promotion. That which you wanted, that role, God said no to you. 
and you really wanted that role. And God said, no, I don't have that ministry. I don't have that role or that job for you. How did you respond? Or how have you responded when things don't go your way? Did you get upset? Did you gossip about those in leadership that gave their role to someone else? Did you slander? Were you envious of the person that got that position? Did you try to discourage or frustrate those around you? This is a very common way that humans respond whenever they don't get the control or position that they thought they wanted. You see, the Israelites here did not want their neighbors to help build the temple because they were not qualified to do so. This is important. They weren't qualified to help build the temple. That wasn't for them to do. They, that wasn't their role. Is it possible that God told you about that role that you wanted because maybe you're not really as qualified as you think you are for that position, ministry or whatever it might be? Maybe you're really not as ready as you think you are. Maybe you wanted that role for your own glory and not for God's glory. And out of mercy, because God loves you, he denied you that position. Could it be that God wants you to see that he wants you to really trust him and enjoy him more and love others more rather than get the control and influence that you think you deserve? I've been there. I've been told no. As a matter of fact, I wanted really bad back in 2010 to be a senior pastor. Really bad. I was an associate pastor at the time, and my resume went far and wide, and I had so many interviews, and after 10 months, it got comical. It was, no, 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 we don't want you, we don't want you, we don't want you. And, and it really, it, it, I didn't like that. I didn't appreciate me, but I kept all the emails. I have like 30 denial emails still saved in my email. Keeps me humble. This is good. Finally. In October of 10, after 10 months of looking, I got the point. God was saying, no, I don't have that position for you. You're not ready. You're too prideful. You're going to wreck whatever church you go to. No. No, I love you too much to give you that role. No way. And I had to finally come into myself and acknowledge that it was about my pride. I was saying the right things. Oh, I want to shepherd a church for God's glory. Oh, I was saying that. But it wasn't about God's glory. It was about my glory. And out of God's goodness, he said no to me. And I had to repent and and come full circle and say, Jesus, you're enough. I'll be content with the role that I have. And six months later, I was visiting my brother in Abu Dhabi. And I met Pastor Cam Aronson from ECC, and he said, would you want to serve in Abu Dhabi? I said, I would love to serve in Abu Dhabi. A year and a half later, I would come here. So it was nearly two years from when I had my come-to-Jesus moment, and those are two very important years. 
I needed that time to repent and to really grow and realize the responsibility of being a shepherd. That's my application. I, but in your life, I assure you, there is an area where we have to be honest. At times we want things or positions that are not for us to have and we're not ready for them. And then we get angry and we want them anyway. And God is good and says, son or daughter, no, no, it's not for you. Trust me. Enjoy me. Serve me here. Am I not enough for you? This is important. So we're seeing here, it says in verse 5, that they were being opposed, it says, until Darius ruled. And that was in 486 B.C., and so that was 50 years later. And so these people were opposing them for a minimum of 50 years, continually opposing Opposing the work and the people of God, opposing restoration. Now, verses 6 through 23, which is, by the way, most of chapter 4, it does not follow the story chronologically. It's kind of interesting. When I was studying it earlier, uh, I'll, I'll admit, I got a little confused. I was like, what? What's going on here? It's mentioning kings that served far later. Like, for example, Ezra mentions... Examples of future opposition, like the, it says the reign of King Ahasuerus, who his reign ended in 464 B.C. And then he mentions the reign of Artaxerxes, which he ended in 423 B.C. This is like over 100 years later from 539 B.C. when they first came in back to the Promised Land. So this restoration period with Ezra and Nehemiah, it was over 100 years. This is a long history in Ezra and Nehemiah that's being covered of restoring to the land, rebuilding the city, the temple, the walls. All of that took over 100 years. Now, Nehemiah, we'll get to him in a few weeks when we start the book of Nehemiah. He came in 445 B.C. He left Babylon, or Persia, and he went to Jerusalem to help rebuild the walls. Now, by the time Nehemiah arrived, it had already been like 70 years since the temple had already been finished. And so Nehemiah came many, many years later, and his goal was to rebuild the city walls because by the time he came, the temple was already finished. And so what you're seeing in verses 6 through 23 is a parenthesis. And so it's in brackets, if you will. So the storyline is temporarily suspended, it's interrupted, to show examples of how for the next hundred years of future events, the inhabitants of the land continue to oppose the work of God. And so it's arranged thematically, not chronologically. So it's showing examples in the future of how God's people continue to be opposed by the enemy. And that's the theme here. So let's read here briefly verses 6 through 16 and see that. So in the reign of Azusarus, I'm sorry, bear with me. In the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam and Mithridath and Tabil and the rest of the associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. 
The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Rehum, the commander of Shimshai, the scribe wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Rehum, the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the, men's, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Osnapar deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and the rest of the province beyond the river. So again, here he's describing different people that, that were deported and that were settled in this area by the Assyrian kings. And these, these are all of the leaders in that region. They're writing a letter to King Artaxerxes. Verse 11, this is a copy of the letter they have sent. To Artaxerxes, the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now because we eat the salt of the palace, now it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor. Therefore, we send and inform the king in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. You will find the book of records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from old. That was why this city was laid waste. And we made known to the king that if this city is rebuilt, its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. Now, there's a lot here. Our time is brief. But the enemies of God send a letter to the king of Persia with all kinds of slander and lies, with some truth that's mixed in, which what this does is this lets us see how our enemy Satan deceives us. He lies to us, but he, he makes it seem believable. So the Samaritans here, they're claiming that they're good servants to the king of Persia, which is a lie. That's not true. All they want is more influence and more control in their region. They hated the Jews. And so they claim that Jerusalem has a history of rebellion and wickedness. Now, that's actually true, rebellious to God. But they claim that the walls, if the walls are rebuilt, that they won't pay their taxes to the Persian government. Now, that's fabricated. There's no reason to make those accusations. The, the Jews were a small people. They weren't a powerful military force. They couldn't oppose the Persian Empire. This is way exaggerated and, quite honestly, lies. They're lying about Jerusalem. The only thing the Jews wanted to do was build the walls to protect themselves from the enemies. But let's read how the king responded to this letter. The king sent an answer to Rechum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria and the rest of the province beyond the river. Greetings, and now the letter that you have sent to us has been plainly read before me. And I made a decree, and search has been made. 
it has been found that this city from old has risen against kings and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem who ruled over the whole province beyond the river to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease and that this city be not rebuilt till a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the grow to the hurt of the king. So he took this warning very seriously. So the Persian Empire for years was trying to expand their borders, but they had a big problem. The Greeks. If you read history, the Greek Empire was really gaining steam at this point in ancient history. And at the border, the Greeks and the Persians, they continued to fight and tried to gain more ground, and the Persians were beginning to lose ground to the Greeks, the rising new empire before the Romans in the ancient world. And so their, their money was running out in all of these Greek wars. And so it was depleted, and they needed more revenue. So the idea of losing revenue was not an option. So he says, shut down the operation, no more rebuilding, stop building the city, Stop building the walls. Leave Jerusalem open to attack. Stop the reconstruction. And then verse 23, as we finish the chapter, actually comes back full circle. And 24, then at that point, it, goes, it comes back to the current context. So it says, when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shemeshai, the scribe and their associates, they went in, haste to the Jews at Jerusalem, and by force and power made them cease. You hear that? By force made them stop rebuilding the city and the walls. Now imagine you live in Jerusalem, okay, ancient world, and there's enemies all around. And you're working hard to rebuild the walls so that you can have security and you can raise your children in safety. And there's slander, lies made about your your people and your city. And the king says, stop building the walls. And all of a sudden you think, how are we going to sleep at night? How many kids can go ride their bikes in the street? It wasn't safe. Imagine the fear and the insecurity of parents knowing that they were not safe. And with no city walls, the city was not safe. They were living with insecurity. And no doubt the thoughts crossed their mind on, where is God? Why? Why? Why is he allowing this to happen? And for years, the wall was not rebuilt. It was laid waste and open to attack. In verse 24, we'll read that here and finish the chapter. It comes back to the original context. So the parentheses ends. The examples of future opposition ends. Now we're back to the original verses 1 through 5 context in 537 B.C. where there's only the temple foundation has been laid. And so it ends and it says, Then the work 
on the house of God that's in Jerusalem stopped. And it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. All right, so let's, let's make sense of this, connect dots, and see how this applies to you and me today. And so the enemies of God here were discouraging, instilling fear, and frustrating the people of God. And so the temple, they stopped rebuilding the temple. Just like years later, they were forced to stop rebuilding the wall. And we'll see this next week, but for 15 years, the temple would not be rebuilt. It was just laid waste. And imagine walking past it every day going to work and seeing temple in ruins. They were too afraid to trust God. In the face of opposition, they were content with partial restoration. They weren't desperate enough to have a full measure of God's restorative work in their lives, they were defeated. And there is so much for us to learn from this Old Testament story. Let me give you the main idea. We've just been looking at the whole chapter, seeing what it says. Let's define what we're seeing here. main idea, the truth is, that God powerfully protects his people from the attacks of the enemy. He does. He protects you and me from the attacks of the enemy. God's purposes cannot be stopped. His plan is going to be accomplished, and he's going to be preserving and sustaining you and me in the middle of attacks from the enemy. We must begin to see Ezra in his proper lens of biblical theology, of seeing how Old Testament and New Testament together tell us one story, the story of redemption through Jesus. And so Ezra here is pointing to a cosmic battle. This is not about Jews and Samaritans squabbling. That's not what this is. This is about a cosmic battle between the serpent and the Messiah. The seed of the serpent are all of those who belong to the kingdom of darkness, who do not love God, who don't trust the king and are opposed to God's kingship. That's the seed of the serpent. As Jesus says, your father is the devil to those that are opposing him. The people of God and purposes of God have been opposed by the serpent since the Garden of Eden. This is nothing new. It's not a surprise that Satan wanted to stop the temple's reconstruction. Not a surprise that Satan wanted to stop the wall's reconstruction. Why? He wanted Jerusalem to be destroyed. The Jews wiped out. Why? There'd be no Messiah. No Messiah. No salvation. For you or me. That's what he's been trying to do since the Garden of Eden. And we find ourselves today in this cosmic battle. We're a part of this. Let me give you three points as we close. Three application points here briefly. That we must know and believe about this opposition. One, expect it. Expect opposition from the enemy. You have to, I'm telling you, expect to be opposed. Ezra is revealing we have a very real enemy. Satan's going to tempt you. He's going to slander you. He's going to condemn you, point out your sin. He's going to accuse you. Just like the serpent 
was using the Samaritans to discourage and try to scare and to frustrate God's people. He will use people and circumstances in your life so that you'll be discouraged. Satan wants you discouraged. He wants you doubting that God is in control. He wants you doubting that he really is there. He wants you afraid. Because if, if you have fear, then you're not looking to God. You're paralyzed by the circumstances. He wants to frustrate our purposes. We have real spiritual warfare to wage every day. So we can't be surprised when he attacks our church and wants to create division. This is not surprising to us. So what do we do in the face of opposition? Well, we read earlier in the gathering from Ephesians 6, where it says that we don't battle against flesh and blood. It's a spiritual battle. She says, what? Put on the armor of God. Get suited up. Get ready for battle. And at the end of that, the chapter, Ephesians 6, he says what? Praying constantly. He says, praying. Pray for me. Pray for each other. You need to pray. And so how, how do we fight against the, the, the evil one? We focus on Jesus. Read his word. We meditate on his word. That's the sort of spirit is the word of God. We pray. We spend time. We draw near to Christ. And that will give us spiritual strength to keep fighting against the enemy. If you are not actively following Jesus every day in a devotional life where your roots are going deep into the word, where you're experiencing God's presence, then you're open to attack. And we must expect it. Number two, while being opposed by the enemy, number two, circumstances may seem bleak. They expect him to oppose, and when he opposes, sometimes it can look really dark. For 15 years, the temple laid waste. For about 12 years, the walls were not being rebuilt until Nehemiah came later. So today, do you feel powerless? Do you feel helpless? That's okay. That's a good place to be. When we're weak, then we're strong because we trust in Christ. Don't focus on the circumstances. Focus on the character of God. No matter how hopeless it might seem, trust. And I re- it's easy to say, but hard to do. Really trust that God is restoring your life, even when it seems bleak. Number three, while being opposed by the enemy, remember this. God's grace is stronger. God's grace really is stronger. We read it in verse 21. In the middle of hopeless circumstances, we're seeing God's graces at work because when King Artaxerxes makes his decree to stop the walls from being built, he adds a phrase in the law, a very important phrase. He says, stop the wall reconstruction until a decree is made by me. He opened the door to say, until I tell you, stop construction until further notice. Those words seem insignificant. But several years later, the same king would have a good friend named Nehemiah who was serving him as cupbearer. And then he gave Nehemiah permission to go and do what? Rebuild the wall. Protect the people of God and preserve God's promises. The same king said, don't later change his mind. You think that was God's hand? You better believe it. 
God is always at work. We trust the decrees of God, not the decrees of man. He is sovereign over us, and we trust him. So the Messiah did come. His people were preserved. We've been rescued from slavery to darkness. We've been restored. And one day, our restoration is going to be complete when he returns and he slays the dragon and leads all of us back into the Garden of Eden, which is the new heavens and the new earth, the final promised land. And so God's grace is stronger than Satan. It's stronger than our failures, stronger than our temptations. His grace is stronger. So what do we do? We draw near to God. And we trust him to complete the restoration that he's already begun. You pray with me. Father, this morning we praise you for you alone are worthy of our praise. Thank you for your word that is as challenging as it is encouraging. Help us to continue to truly trust you in the face of the enemy's onslaught, knowing that you are stronger and our victory is your son's victory. I praise you and we thank you in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.